in this book. Nobody prays. Nobody prophesies. No one has any sort of vision. No one performs a miracle. It is very devoid of spiritual things when it comes to God. And the biggest thing, as Mary Jane pointed out, God is not mentioned in it. And we're not going to get into that this morning. There's a whole bunch of stuff that really distracted me in the academic side of the arguments of what this means and how to interpret it. But it is going to affect how we're going to study and learn from God's Word when we have a book that just does not mention God. Now Esther is continuing with this theme in the seasons of life as we're looking at the spring of life. Esther, you ask most scholars and historians as we're going to further read into it, Esther was likely 14, maybe at the oldest, 17, 18, like young. Very young. A teenage girl. Now, Esther, can anyone remember roughly what time period this is? Where are we in just general biblical history in the book of Esther? Anyone recall that? I think the Medes and the Persians is what you mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, so we're at, we're at the tail end of captivity. Um, as a matter of fact, reading this alongside the book of Ezra puts you roughly at about the same time. If you go into the dates right now, we're going to read about a guy named, you're going to read in your Bible as Ahasuerus. That guy is also known as King Xerxes, well or well known in history. Xerxes ruled from 486 to 465 BC, of course. Um, so that's the date of the events. The book could have been written around there in the 5th century, maybe as late as the 3rd century, but it was accepted as scripture amongst the Hebrews a few hundred years, I mean well before Jesus hit the scene in the flesh. Accepted scripture well before uh, he came in. Uh, there's going to be a lot of literary devices. You're going to see a lot of irony in this story. We're also going to see um, a lot of situational irony, dramatic irony. Uh, you're going to see a lot of role reversals where things are going to flip on its head. And also keep note, when, as the audience, as the readers of the book of Esther, you're going to notice that we notice a lot of things and truths that are happening that the rest of the characters don't. So we're going to have knowledge of what a lot of the characters do not. So, of course, a good place to start with Esther would be Esther chapter 1. If you want to take a look at that. Esther 1, let's go ahead and read the first couple verses here. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, remember that is Xerxes, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, uh, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Median nobles and governors and provinces were before him. Verse 4, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now, this is Susa, that's modern-day Iran. When you read Susa, a citadel, that is the palace. Keep that in mind. Um, but this very accurately and historically shows the provinces that match up with extra-biblical writings, and as well as the extent of the empire, India to Ethiopia. Um, so right away, we kind of see the nature of Artaxerxes, or Artaxerxes, that's a different guy, of Xerxes, 
aka Ahasuerus. What do we know? A lot of you have read this book, but what do we know about him, and what do you understand about Ahasuerus here in the verse 5 verses? What kind of guy do you think of when you hear of Xerxes, especially just here in the first five verses of the book? What kind of guy are we dealing with here? There's not really a, a wrong answer, just looking for character traits. What do you picture when you hear of Xerxes, what we're reading about him? Ah, self-centered. <laughs> did you say child at the end? Huh? What did you say at the end? Tyrant. Tyrant, okay. Tyrant, self-centered. Any other attributes? Very rich. Tyrant who's very rich. Sounds like a dangerous combination. Self-centered person who's rich. That's not good. Any other ideas? I mean, those can pretty much uh, sum it up. 180 days, it's a long time to party. I don't think that's 24-hour parties, but it's just a general time and age with activities and whatnot. But if you go down to verse uh, 7, drinks are served in golden vessels. Verse 8, there is drinking, that's alcoholic for sure, according to this edict, uh, there is no compulsion. Hmm. For the king had given orders to all his staff to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, George is going through a sermon series on judges, which famously states that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You kind of see that theme here at the end of verse 8, that each man was to do uh, what they desired. And... Uh, you know, it, it's publicly funded drunkenness. Uh, obviously, that's not the way of God's people. And we're going to see, that's actually going to be really important. We're going to see a theme of intoxication throughout the book multiple times that is going to lead to what we would think, and I think most people would think, to be really crazy, unwise decisions based around drinking. Now, another side piece after verse 9 here, just historically, is Xerxes, extra-biblically, we know, is about to go to Greece. If you know anything about that, doesn't go super well, comes back, can't conquer the entirety of Greece. This is like uh, showing off the wealth, maybe kind of a get-hyped kind of party, because not long after this, just historically, we know they go to invade Greece. But now we look at verse 10. Um, they want to, verse 11, they want to bring Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes, these are the people he's been showing off his wealth to, her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And this is the king, he became enraged and his anger burned within him. Speculatory, but worth asking through the story. Why do you suppose Queen Vashti refused to come before uh, Xerxes here? Because in verse 9, I believe, she's also throwing her own party. She seems to be in line with the king. And then here, she's like, I'm not, I'm not showing up. Any theories as to why that would be the case? Again, there's not like a black and white one, just a theory for our thinking. That seems pretty fair. The desire just not to be paraded. I'm sure 
Um, totally different cultures, but if you were having people over and your husband was all like, oh, look at my beautiful wife in this dress or outfit, that would be weird, and you'd be like, this is, I'm not property to be paraded around. Any other ideas? Margaret? She didn't want to be leered at by a bunch of drunken men, because as you've just pointed out, um, and as I just mentioned, this is right after drunkenness. And so in intoxication, like, let's, let's take a look at the queen. Now, rabbinic writers thought she would have been naked. But I, people debate that because it says with her royal crown. To me, that makes it sound like she's in her royal garb. Either way, it's not good. And I think there's pretty fair reasons as to why she would not want to be paraded. Uh, verse 12 the king, he, he's really upset, and he's looking at those who were versed in law and judgment. And he's got these seven princes, Karshina, Shethar, verse 14, Admatha, Tarshish, Merses, Marcina, and Mimikin, the seven princes of Persia and Media. Uh, verse 15, according to law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuch. So even though she's the queen, got to remember the king has complete and total authority and reign in this situation. Now, where are we? Wow, already 42. For the sake of time, if you just skim over verses 17 through 22, they have the idea, verse 19, he says, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. If you remember in Daniel 6, King Darius is upset because he can't get Daniel out of the lion's den because the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be revoked. Um, but verse 17 is important because he says the queen's behavior will be made known to all women. This is the fear causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. And they'll say if the king commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. So the, the concern is domestically across all of the empire that there's going to be an upheaval of uh, women over men and whatnot. Pretty chauvinistic mindset in this culture for sure. But it's kind of ironic that Xerxes here says in order that no one will do this, that the women will not defy their husbands and will have upheaval in our nation, Something that happened privately within the palace, now Xerxes is going to make it public with an edict. That does not seem like very wise leadership. Seems like he could have kept it uh, pretty private. Um, and then he sends out people to go tell them alike, this is not allowed, it cannot be repealed. Verse 20, so when the decree is made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it was vast that all women give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. And this advice pleased the king and the princes. He did as Mimukin proposed, and he sent uh, letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So that makes it very clear this is, he wants it communicated to everyone, everywhere. All that sets up, and that was pretty quick, but all that sets up us meeting Esther. That's the background and it sets 
really the stage for how decisions are going to be made. We're going to see, if you saw here, Xerxes everywhere in this book is going to look to everyone else to give him answers, which again, historically, is kind of baffling because Xerxes was a pretty successful king, a pretty successful commander, and yet when it comes to certain affairs here in Esther, he, he's going to look like a fool over and over and over again. Now, mind you, this is written from a Jewish point of view. That might be part of the narrative effects to make him look silly. But also, I mean, just look at our own politicians. <laughs> they can do one thing great one day, and, and then the next can act rather foolish. So it's not too, too surprising. So let's look at chapter 2 now. We've just talked about the irony that Vashti kind of gets what she wants. She didn't want to appear before the king. And so then Xerxes says, you know what? If you won't appear before me, I'll make it a rule that you can't come before me and you're kicked out as queen. Kind of weird that he kind of gave her what she wanted in that command. I'm pretty sure her queenship was gone. But just not the greatest decision-making from Xerxes. But after these things, chapter 2, verse 1, when the anger of King Ahasuerus was, or had, abated... He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And the king's young men, they attended and they said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And the king appointed officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, that's the palace, under custody of Hegei, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. Let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. And he did so. So once again, Xerxes is just kind of told, here's what you should do. And he's like, sure, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just do that. But now we meet uh, the important characters of this book. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. That is significant. So two things pointing out with this before we get to Esther. Uh, so for Mordecai, Mordecai is the only one called, you'll see it again and again, Mordecai the Jew, or the Jew Mordecai. Esther is never called a Jew in the book. Now clearly that is, she is Jewish, but she never gets that title. Only Mordecai does. Now, in verse 6, it says that Mordecai, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with uh, Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Verse 7, he, that's Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, for Mordecai to literally be the guy who was carried away from Jerusalem, I believe he'd have to be 127 or 120 years old. Pretty old. I don't think he's that old. I think the idea um, is that he was brought in in the sense of his fathers were brought in before him. But if you look at verse 5, can anyone tell me what would be significant that Mordecai is the son of Kish, a Benjaminite? 
That's where Saul came from. Who said that? Who said here? Nice. <laughs> you can know, know your Bible. Yeah, this is where Saul came from. Um, not dogmatic about it, but at the very least, it seems to be setting up, uh, you know, history repeats itself, and it seems to be setting up a narrative of what's going to happen again. We're going to see in a few minutes what this has to do with the enemy of the story. Um, but from Kish, 1 Samuel 15, where... Um, where you get these ideas. But again, it seems to me Mordecai would be younger than 120. Not so sure if he was literally taken from Jerusalem. Not going to say it's impossible, uh, but unlikely. Now, he brings up Hadassah. That is Esther. So, pretty usual, like you see with Daniel and his friends, you get your name changed. Uh, Hadassah, no longer her name, name Esther. Uh, could usually means like star. They were big into astrology. Sometimes maybe war or love. Most likely star for the name for Esther. Um, but then we look at Esther here in verse 8. So the king, remember, he wants to replace Vashti. Verse 8, And the king's order and edict when they were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her, that's Esther, with cosmetics and portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Interesting advice from Mordecai. So this is where, particularly with the seasons of life, what we're going to see the next few Bible classes. So they're cousins, but Mordecai is significantly older than Esther. She, as you can read, I believe it was verse 7, took her as his own daughter. He's the father figure for her in growing up. Um, so he's So there's the older generation trying to protect and guide the younger generation in the spring of life. Now, if you look at, we just read it, verse 10, Esther had not made it known of her kindred that she's Jewish because Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Why do we think Mordecai told Esther, hey, don't tell anyone about your Jewish heritage? Why would that be? Alright, so they're, they're, the, they're the aliens there, they're the subservient and beneath uh, the people, they're exiles, they're in a foreign nation. Any other ideas along those lines as to why Mordecai would say, hey, don't, don't say anything about your heritage? That was the main thing I could think of. Thank you very much. Yes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Carlton just brought up in chapter 3, we're going to see Haman's not going to like the idea of a Jew not being respectful to him. So we're pointing out um, 
you know, the racism that would be toward these people, and we're going to see a list of that in chapter 3 as to why they wouldn't like them. I mean, that's nothing new today. Naturally, it's something I and we have to fight is when, uh, when we're in an environment where everyone thinks and looks and acts like us, and then someone comes in who's different, whether it's in your neighborhood or it's in your country, a lot of times people are like, what, what's their deal? And you see lots of tragedies throughout history because people are scared of those who are not like them in their ignorance. So all that, would, I think, would fairly sum up why Mordecai, the older, telling the younger, you know what, let's keep this under wraps for right now. But things become morally questionable at best in verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months, so it's been a year of this, under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, what a word that is, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening... She would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shahazagez, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So in the turn, verse 15, came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Hajuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast of all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Okay. So that's great. She's queen now. But were there any moral um, givens for Esther in order to become queen? Was there any sin involved here? What are your thoughts about that? What we just read. It looks like she lost her virginity. Seems abundantly clear that she did. That would be one. Anything else you could think of that might be morally questionable here? Ah, so you're pointing out that Xerxes didn't parade Esther when she became queen. Maybe he learned his lesson with Vashti not to parade her. Okay, that would be, I guess, a good thing. Anything else? Any other ideas or thoughts, questions, or comments on this section here? Yeah, reading my notes here. So a great point from, from Hannah is, well, perhaps this has to do kind of with Mordecai's um, uh, advice. Of if she was Jewish, she wouldn't be desirable. 
Now, this, this gets confusing because, obviously, if you know the story of Esther, it's because of Esther's position in the kingdom that we're going to see salvation in a, pure, in a physical and, I guess, some spiritual sense. We'll talk about that later. But we're going to see salvation for the Jewish people because of her position as a leader, as queen. And yet, the way she got there certainly would not be one that any person of God's people could endorse. Because Esther, now that she's queen, think about these things. So yes, she was told to keep it a secret, which at least has some good, I mean, just purely secular mindset. That seems wise. Um, But she kept her Jewishness a secret. And since God is not mentioned in this book, the only thing that's going to connect us to Yahweh is the fact that people are Jewish. Also remember, God said, hey, don't marry pagans, don't marry Gentiles. Why? Not because of the race, but because they will pull you away from me and they're going to take you into idolatry. So she's married a pagan. And as has been pointed out, she's also fornicated. This is not the most grand upstart. When I picture Esther, I don't picture this. This could be kind of like Joseph. Even then, Joseph didn't do anything like this. We were just in Jeremiah with George, and again, no one's perfect, but Jeremiah, as a young man, didn't have this kind of start. Why do you suppose it is that usually, I'm not negating that we can make mistakes when we're older, but why is it that we generally make bigger mistakes as a young person? Very subjective, but it will probably have some spiritual truths. Why do you suppose that is the case? You might not know right from wrong. Right. You're... Sometimes we're just ignorant in our youth and we're just starting. Might not have the deepest faith. Any ideas further on that? Why do we usually make mistakes in our youth? Daddy? We don't know how to stand up for what's right. I mean, this is a stressful situation to be put into. Now, to be fair, Vashti said no in chapter 1. And she was removed of her queenship. She's replaced. But as far as I can tell, she lived. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that Esther could have said, I'm not going to participate in these things and live. I saw another hand over here on this idea. Is it you, Josh? Uh, so summed up there is in, in our youth, we're ignorant very often of the spiritual and the physical consequences that can come with our sin. Versus, you know, the wiser usually would say, hey, I saw this, or this may even have happened to me. Wouldn't recommend this course of action, or if it's just outright wrong, they tell you, don't do this. Now, that does put a strange light on Mordecai. There's no way Mordecai was ignorant of this is just some sort of beauty pageant. Surely not. So I can't place all the blame on Esther. That doesn't take away her responsibility. But it is interesting that God would use these means to get his will done. Now the ends obviously don't justify the means. I got one hand here and then there. Yes? Go for it, yeah. Oh, I mean, historically, 
Concubines weren't viewed as quite so much. And what's saying here is that these women are brought in, yes, to take into chambers tonight. Then they're put directly in the harem. It's not like using them back up in the mouth. Using them in the Yeah, it's like a power move. Yeah, we're kind of getting to, I mean, even David, like for example, King David and Solomon as concubines and, and whatnot. Uh, obviously, the, the approved example of God's command that Jesus skips past all of that and just says, it was not so in the beginning, one man, um, one woman. But with the concubines, you also have, you know, it, it's a power move, which is also why eunuchs, masculated men, which is why eunuchs are in charge of them. Because this is very much so... A, a political move, but at least they're not kicking them out on the street. Eddie, did you have a hand? One last comment here. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's usually just it's usually just a title for the young women and the amount of concubines that are there. There could still be some virgins uh, amongst the group. I had that question myself when I went looking into it. Um, at the very least, though, back in verses like 12 through, I, I, I don't know, where, where, where everyone goes in in the evening and the morning, I think that is universally agreed upon that um, that there's intercourse and all that jazz going on in there. All right, anything else? Any other comments? So, ends don't justify the means, obviously. But could you say in your life that you have come closer to God because of your mistakes, that God used it to bring him to you? Not that it justified that sin, but does God ever use our mistakes to bring us closer to him for his purpose. I think everyone's going to universally agree with that. I'm not asking for a show of hands here for the older or the younger people, but I've seen even just in my young life the times where not just I should not have done that, but this was wrong for Caleb to do. And how it's helped me look back to see, you know, where's my growth going and how I've changed. doesn't justify it, but God is sovereign indeed. It's a strange, mystifying thing to think about. All right, we've, wow, it's 10.03 here. Uh, let's read the end of chapter 2. Look at verse uh, 19. Eddie pointed out these virgins are gathered together a second time. Mordecai, he's sitting at the king's gate. If you read through the Bible, the king's gate is usually a place of justice, important conversation. Perhaps Esther put him there. doesn't say. I don't know. Verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Mordecai, is, we're gonna, here's another thing we're going to see in our study the next few classes. Mordecai is always in the need to know. He's somehow always in these secret places and whatnot, uh, figuring out what is important in any situation. Uh, an interesting historical part, though, in verse 22, where it says they were hanged on the gallows. 
do not think of old western gallows that probably resided in places literally here in Lubbock not too long ago. Think of just a stake. You've probably heard of things like that where someone very graphically would be put on a stake. That's most likely what we're talking about when we read gallows. The word just means tree or pole. Um, but it's like a stake. And we're going to see those gallows come up again later. So here we have Mordecai do a good thing for the king. Right? Saves his life. You'd think, okay, Mordecai would be rewarded. And again, we're just going to see a continual theme of foolish decisions by Xerxes, that is Ahasuerus. Because if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, after these things, after Mordecai saved his life, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. And you're like, who's that guy? Why are we promoting Haman when Mordecai just saved his life? Pretty perplexing. And so, but look at this. Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and he advanced him, Haman, and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Okay. Remember we pointed out back in Esther 2, I believe it was verse 5, that Mordecai is the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. What is significant about Haman being an Agagite? Saul was supposed to kill all the Amalekites. And of course, that's where he gets his kingship removed from him. And Samuel's like, you were supposed to do this. So it's, so this, what is it, like four or five? I think it would be like 500 years before. Before all of this, you're going 500-ish years, all the way back to King Saul and the Amalekites. That was like the main rival. That's the person who Saul was supposed to kill, and he didn't. But the point is setting up that history repeats itself. If you're reading this from a Jewish point of view in a narrative that we have a guy, Mordecai, who's seemingly from the lineage of Saul, and we have Haman, who's from the lineage of the Amalekites, it's setting up conflict that we've seen 500 years before. That just history is going to repeat itself between God's people and the Gentiles who reject him. If you look at verse 2, all the king's servants, they were at the king's gate. They bowed down. They paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them, and they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai didn't bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he, dis- he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. All right, so interesting that he doesn't bow down, and he gives the reason why. And it's, it's not Haman who originally sees Mordecai standing, defying to bow down. Haman's sidemen, his servants come and say, hey, Mordecai is not respecting you. And they go, and they see if this is going to keep on happening. Mordecai makes it clear why he's not bowing down, because of his, Jewish, of his Jewishness. Now, when you go read his history, it was not bowing down in the, per- in the Medo-Persian Empire. There was no divine worship of the kings. It was just a form of respect. So that makes me ask and wonder what's happening here. 
I don't know if I can say black and white, um, but it does say the king's decree was to bow down to him. But again, this is kind of subjective, but important to think about. Why do we suppose that Mordecai didn't bow down before Haman? Any thoughts to that? Why would he not bow down? He didn't respect him. I mean, if we just read what happened before, Mordecai might have, as we would say, a chip on his shoulder saying, I just saved the king's life, and this guy's promoted. And as, as we can tell right away, he's kind of scummy, not kind of. Verse 6, it says he didn't want to seek out Mordecai by himself, but he wanted to kill everyone. I don't know if that's cowardly, if he did not want the awkward one-on-one, or because he's so wrathful, he wants everyone gone with him. And we're going to see a huge lesson of pride around Haman. Haman is emotionally unstable, I would say. We're going to see in this book where he's just at the top of the world, and then the next day he's just at the absolute bottom. He sees one guy, think about that. He sees one guy disrespecting him, and he's like, you know what? Because of that one guy's actions, let's kill all of his people. Even just from a worldly, secular point of view, is that very reasonable? It sure doesn't seem like it. Pretty unreasonable uh, guy. Very often when we're prideful, we go to extremes. I think that with myself and pride, even in small things, right? We've all done this. I tell you a story, and I exaggerate the story. Everything was bigger than what it was. Why do we do that? Why would we exaggerate the story? Well, we want to make ourselves look better. It's a little piece of pride. Or when something happens to us, whether it's your job or a car accident or whatnot, it's never our fault, right? And when something bad happens to us, it's exaggerated very often from this tiny little thing to the worst thing that could have happened to me. And then when I do something good the next day, I tell everyone how Caleb did this thing the next day and how wonderful it was and how big it was because we just exaggerate what happens to us or what we do, whether it was good or it was bad. Why? Because without the Holy Spirit, without the work of God, we're naturally proudful. We're very proud. And that is Haman. This is just the the tip of the iceberg of Haman, as we're going to see here, where just one guy was disrespectful to him, and so he blows it up to, let's have this be upon everyone. All right, I guess we'll just stop right there. We're going to pick up in 3, verse 7, into chapter 4. But this is a really interesting way to set up the story. How, this is the last question I'll ask, because you guys pack it up. Last question I'll ask for the group. Are we seeing, and how, where do you think we're seeing it? Are we seeing the providence of God here in just the first few chapters? Where would you see we're seeing the providence of God? He's putting Esther where she needs to be. Even using her own mistakes to put her where she needs to be. And that's probably the clearest one, Carlton. Yes. Very significant. If you look, I know some of you close your Bible. I'll read it for you, though. Uh, in 2.22, it talks about how right after Mordecai saved the king's life, Carl points out a very important piece that it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So even though Haman in chapter 3 is the one who's promoted, remember that. 
that this was recorded in the Chronicles of the King that Mordecai had saved his life. That will be important for the story later. Anywhere else where you guys think you've seen God's hand, his providence in this story? There's a lot of them. There's probably ones I've missed too. There's, there's a ton of them. It's interesting that, I mean, I mean this is clear, but I'm just pointing it out. Not only does he use um, the good things and the bad things, but even just those who don't even worship or recognize Yahweh, he's used their drunkenness and the parties and whatnot. He's used their own sin that's actually going to come around against them. And not only are we going to see that with those who are Gentile or pagan, those who don't worship the Lord, but we're going to see that with Mordecai and Esther. That ought to be a lesson for us. When we feel the most comfortable because of where we are in society, where we are physically speaking, God's going to show us, actually you're not, and you're not in charge, no matter how secure you feel. Probably a good lesson for us would have been last year with COVID in 2020. Um, Wherever you think as secure as you are, that is not the case. Going to be a huge lesson with the sovereignty of God in Esther. All right, any other comments or thoughts based on that alone? All right, then I'm going to read the rest of chapter 3, and that'll be it. We'll just leave it on the cliffhanger. So 3 verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples and the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They don't keep the king's laws so that uh, it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charged the king's business, that they may be put into the king's treasuries. So the king took a signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, due to within or Oh, excuse me, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, the governors of all the provinces, and the officials of the peoples, to every province in its own script, every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters are sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the instruction to destroy, kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman, here's our drinking again, sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Ahasuerus doesn't know what group is to be killed. The city doesn't know what's going on. The palace is blind to the confusion outside of its city gates. And Haman does not know that Esther is a Jew. So there's our cliffhanger where we'll pick back up Wednesday night as we go through the seasons of life looking at the youth of Esther. Thanks for your attention and comments, guys.